Hey, Weeds fans, uh, we've got a sort of a, a, a Weeds special here for you. Uh, Vox.com's Dylan Matthews doing an interview with Jason Furman. Uh, he's been described as, as the wonkiest wonk in the White House for the past three years. He's been Obama's chief economist, and he's been an important part of Obama's brain trust since the 2008 campaign. He helped design the stimulus. He helped design Obamacare. He's also a, a really interesting guy. He had a teenage career as a street juggler in Washington Square Park, where I, in fact, uh, saw him perform. And he was college roommates with Matt Damon, who describes him as one of the smartest people I've come across. So in the later years of the administration, he started doing some really interesting research into rent-seeking. That's a term economists use for ways in which people and businesses try to get more money for themselves without really creating anything of value. That extra slice of the pie is known as a rent. What he's found is that zoning rules make it hard to build in big cities, occupational licensing rules keep people out of jobs, and they're generating huge rents for landlords and, and license holders. They're holding back the economy. So he and Vox's Dylan Matthews talk about that. They talk about the Affordable Care Act's Cadillac tax, and they talk about why more and more working age men aren't actually working. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So uh, please listen up. Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we're less than a year until the end of this administration. You've been here since the beginning. What, looking back, are you proudest of having been involved in? And what is your biggest regret that you weren't able to get done? Proudest would be two things. One is a set of policies that help save the economy from going into a second Great Depression. The Recovery Act was larger than anything we'd ever done before in this country. It had a huge amount both in terms of macro policy but also energy, innovation, dealing with poverty, putting us in a better position to deal with a lot of the issues that our country faces. And together with a bunch of other steps, it worked and we're in better shape today than most of the other advanced economies because of those efforts. The second thing is the Affordable Care Act, which is not just 20 million people with health insurance, not just contributing to the slowest health cost growth in 50 years to a range of measures showing quality is better, but is also the biggest step we've taken on inequality in decades. And having been you know, part of both of those is two of the proudest things you know, I've done with my life. Let's dig in a little bit to the, to the second point, since I think this doesn't get covered a lot in, in coverage of, of the Affordable Care Act. Um, so what, what do we know about its, its effect on inequality? Do we, do we have numbers on that yet or just a sort of general sense of the, the structure? Yeah, we're, we're working to uh, do a better quantification of that. But when you have tax subsidies for people between 100 and 400 percent of poverty, a Medicaid expansion in all the states that have taken it up, and obviously they all should take it up, but all the states that have taken it up for people up to 138 percent of poverty, you're talking about something that represents a very progressive change. And those changes were funded in part by steps like taking the Medicare tax which right now had historically applied to earned income and applying it to unearned income. So you had to pay it on your capital gains and dividends in addition to your work. So when that sort of debate over health care has, has kind of opened up again this election cycle, and, and I don't, I mean, as, as huge of an achievement as, as the Affordable Care Act is, there are obviously some holes. There's still a large uninsured population, much smaller than it was, but still substantial. What do you think is, is sort of the next step if you were devising a set of ways to expand it? Would it be sort of a public option, 
all-payer rate setting, global budgeting? What, what do you think of as being part of a package like that? The next steps are, frankly, to fully implement it. <laughs> the important set of those steps are in the hands of governors and state legislatures that have outrageously chosen not to take a 90% federal match, 100% initially, to do something that is you know, right by their citizens, right by their economies. So getting all those states in. The Affordable Care Act gave us a lot of tools on the delivery system. It gave us a huge amount of flexibility to experiment in Medicare and find ways to either save money without worsening quality or improve quality without hurting costs. And we're continuing to roll things out and deploy things based on that. And then the final thing the Affordable Care Act gave us was the most powerful tool we have to create an incentive for less health cost growth in the private sector, which is the Cadillac tax, and that is scheduled to go into effect in 2020. There's some reforms we could do to make it target better, targeted better, but the most important thing is making sure that goes into effect. So there's certainly more we could do. There's more we could legislate. Sure. But before we even have that conversation, there's a lot of tools we already have in this law that we haven't yet fully put to use and to keep pushing that forward. How much does it worry you that both Democratic candidates want to repeal the Cadillac tax outright? I, I'm not going to comment on an election, but as a matter of public policy, I think the Cadillac tax is a combination of lowering health costs, raising wage growth, cutting the deficit, and complementing the other changes in the Affordable Care Act. So I think it is a you know, really important progressive priority and part of the overall strategy to raise wages. And for that reason, I think it's important. So the argument there is once we start treating health benefits closer to how we treat wages, the bias toward doing compensation in terms of, of health insurance rather than wages will be reduced. People's wages will go up. There's an argument you sometimes hear from labor quarters. I know Josh Bivens at, at EPI has made this argument that the empirical case there isn't there. We don't have an experience of analogous situations, employers diverting compensation back to wages. Are you persuaded by that that argument? or? I think there's a strong theoretical case mm -hmm. that when health costs are going up really quickly, employers aren't going to pay the same types of wage increases. There's a strong empirical case in a range of studies. But finally, there's just a practical common sense one. You can go through everyone who's ever been at the bargaining table, and they have quotes which say, quotes from a decade ago saying health cost growth is so high that when we get to the bargaining table, the employer is telling us they won't give us a wage increase because all of our money went to extra health benefits. And the health benefit cost growth is really hurting our wages. The question then is the converse also has to be true. It has to be a lot easier to bargain for a wage increase in a world where you don't have to spend as much time and energy fighting for those extra dollars on health. So from the other perspective, there's, there's an emerging critique, not just of the Affordable Care Act, but of Medicaid in general, deriving from this Oregon study, that there's a contention that the health effects we saw in this sort of a random case where Oregon lottery to access to a Medicaid expansion, that, that there weren't 
huge physical health benefits. There were some mental health gains. And, and also there was a recent sort of interpretation of the study arguing that it suggested Medicaid recipients valued their benefits at significantly less than the cash value. So like maybe it would be better to just give people the money rather than providing it through an insurance system. I'm curious what you make of that since it obviously sort of mm-hmm. hasn't changed your overall view on the, on the wisdom of this policy, but it does seem to be sort of affecting the debate. So I think there's three sets of reasons why you'd want public subsidies for health insurance for low-income households. The most important is health, and I'll come back to that. Second is it's a way to get more money or more resources in the hands of people that need it, addressing the inequality that we were talking about before, the progressivity. And third, giving someone a dollar versus giving them insurance. So if they really need it, they get a lot more than a dollar. And if they don't, maybe they don't get anything, is more valuable, even if the average cost is just a dollar, than giving someone a dollar. But I don't want to lose that health part, which was the first and most important argument. I think the Oregon study gave us pretty clear evidence of certain health benefits, both self-reported, how people felt about their health, and in areas like mental health, which you referred to. On almost everything else, the study was what an economist would call underpowered. If you asked, you give someone health insurance, and the study only followed people for a year and a half, because after a year and a half, everyone got into Medicaid. You give someone insurance for a year and a half, you ask how much more they're going to go to a doctor, how much more is a year and a half of a doctor going to make a difference, and you'd predict it would make a difference, but not a massive, massive difference, but a meaningful difference. You compare that prediction to what they found, they found something pretty similar to that. They just didn't have a large enough sample size to proclaim that as statistically significant. So I don't think the study could have found definitive health impacts because there just weren't enough people in it and it didn't last for long enough. So to to move on to the first thing you, you were proudest of working on, the economic recovery, we're recording this shortly after uh, the latest jobs report came out, and we were talking before we were recording that we don't see the employment to population ratio of prime age men, so men from 25 to 54, back where it was before the recession, that it's better than the nadir of the recession, but it's not where it was previously. And you had an interesting explanation for why you think that is, and, and it's in some ways more concerning than, than just the economy not having fully recovered. So let me start with the positive story. The sure. unemployment rate was 10%. It's now 5%. You know, the official unemployment rate doesn't count discouraged workers. If you count them, you see the same trend. It doesn't account people working part-time for economic reasons. You count them, you also see the same trend. Whatever measure of unemployment you use, it is way down, and the broader measures of unemployment have actually recently fallen more quickly than the official measure of unemployment. So we really have seen a remarkable recovery in our labor market, but it's a little bit like a huge wave came crashing in, and then the wave recedes, and two things happen. It had a little bit of damage that it leaves in its wake, But you can also see what was there on the beach before the wave rolled up over it. And what was there on the beach was a 60-year-long decline in the percentage of men between the age of 25 and 54, so-called prime-age men, who were in the workforce. In the 1950s, 
97% of men were in the workforce, either in a job or looking for a job. Only 3% were out of it. It steadily, decade after decade, grew to be 12%. In fact, every single economic recovery we've had in this post-war period, save one, the employment population ratio for prime age men ended up lower than where it was before the recession. In that sense, you never have ever fully recovered from a recession. And I think that's a, a trend we see that's been going on for a long time. It's concentrated among men with less education. It's not because their spouses are working. Less than a quarter of them have a working spouse. It's not because disability insurance is out of control. Disability insurance is a small fraction of those people who are out of labor force. And I think it's something about our economic system that we really need to worry about and work on solving. So we have, we have four times as many working-age men that are not in the workforce as we did 60 years ago, and we basically have no idea why. We know a certain amount about who they are. Sure. Less education, less skills. There's a number of explanations we can rule out, but absolutely we don't have... We don't have a great explanation. Now, you don't need to have a perfect explanation of something to get to work solving it. Sure. Extra infrastructure would help us solve this. Wage insurance to help people get back into a job would solve it. So there's a whole bunch of things that would make it better. But yeah. Do do we have any sort of longitudinal sense? Do we have a sense if these were men who at one point were working and then sort of lost a job and and had trouble recovering? or, Or is it people who were just sort of persistently excluded? It seems to be that the losses are concentrated in recessions. Mm -hmm. So you're in the workforce, you lose your job, you don't get back on your feet, and you stay out of the workforce thereafter seems to be the predominant story. Is this concentrated in particular industries? Is it the men who are working in a manufacturing or construction job that is pretty well-paying but not super high skill? lose their job and then what's available for them or sales clerk positions that that won't get them on their feet or it certainly coincides with a decline in manufacturing as a share of the economy and i haven't followed the particular workers in the data to ask where mm-hmm. they came from and and which industry they entered from i think that's an interesting question how do these people get by do we do we know anything about like if they're not working and they're not mostly on disability insurance and they're not mostly getting money from their spouse, that this isn't sort of a stay-at-home dad situation. Right. And and you're also saying that this is concentrated in people with lower income. It's, it's not like we have a bunch of 27-year-olds getting PhDs. We're collecting we dividend checks. Right. Um, yeah. The data aren't clear about that. And people aren't starving. You know, people are getting income from somewhere. Maybe it's from a family member. Maybe there's some government you know, program, uh, although there aren't a whole lot for able-bodied men without children. You know, to some degree, these are, you know, this is a similar group to the one that's seen its mortality go up, that's seen its opioid use go up. So there's a set of bigger problems that we need to worry about in that, in that community. Is, is some of this a, a failure of response to, to not just the decline of manufacturing, but, but specifically to trade that I think sort of the David Otter study on the effects of, of opening to China, while not sort of a definitive debunking of the idea that we should have been open to trade to China, did suggest that like the, the losses for jobs among a certain sort of segment of men were pretty massive in, in certain areas. Do we just not handle that, that shock well? 
I think we haven't handled, you know, there's been a set of technological changes, a set of changes associated with trade and globalization. China's entry in the world economy is in some sense sui generis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've never seen anything that large and we're not going to see something that large again. And you look at something like TPP, that's with a different set of countries, with a different set of rules associated with it, with a different set of you know, disproportionately knocking down barriers overseas. So it's not, you don't want sort of all trade and all trade agreements lumped together to say you learned something from, you know, that experiment with China for something that's very different. But um, certainly I think in terms of connective tissue that if labor markets that helps connect people to new jobs, train them to new jobs, motivate them to, you know, think they can do those new jobs, we do flexibility really well in the United States, but we do flexibility for employers, not for employees. And it takes more than flexibility to make labor markets work. And why aren't employers doing more here? I mean, in certain industries, you, you hear all the time about these app academies that are opening up for people who want to learn to be programmers because there's such a shortage of, of labor for, for programming companies that they're sort of making their own supply there. Why isn't that happening for sort of lower skilled professions? I don't know. I mean, I hear from businesses all the time that talk about how hard it is to find workers. And I always ask them, well, what if you paid an extra $2 an hour? Would it get easier to find those workers? And then there's a reason why that doesn't work. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a disconnect between what you hear in terms of the difficulty of finding workers and what you see in terms of wages. Now, you know, we have over the last three years seen wages at the 10th percentile grow faster than at any other percentile of distribution and, you know, wages in the middle growing decently. But in terms of the longer term, you know, several decades, that's not, that's not what we've seen in the market. And that to me suggests in sort of broad economic terms, is it a supply of workers? People don't want to work. If people don't want to work, two things should happen. Fewer of them will work, right. but the ones who still are working will become really sought after and their wages will go up. We've seen half of that. <laughs> right. The other explanation is less demand. You don't want as many of those types of workers. What do you see then? Less people working, check. Lower relative wage, check. So it feels a little bit more like something that's happened on the demand side of the economy. And so this, this is a theory that Larry Summers has put out there a lot in recent years that we might just be in a time when there is not enough demand in the economy, not just because we had a recession and obviously there was a shortfall of demand there, but just that, that as a general matter. Do you buy that? And, and if so, do you sort of buy his prescription that we might need sort of persistent deficit spending for the foreseeable future to, to keep the economy in gear? I mean, that's a little bit of a different issue than we've just been talking about. Sure. You know, we've been talking about something that's been going on for 60 years that might have to do with a demand for a certain type of worker right, as opposed right. to aggregate demand in a macroeconomic sense. I think we had massively deficient demand in 2008 and nine, and fiscal stimulus was appropriate then, and monetary expansion was appropriate then. We have today still some insufficiency of demand, and monetary policy can make its own decisions without me commenting <laughs> on it. But you know what we did last year with the fiscal deal of buying back 90% of the sequester means that we actually have a mildly expansionary 
federal fiscal policy. And I think that's good news for the economy in 2016 and, and a reason to be optimistic. Do I think we need to you know, radically change in sort of good times and bad the rule around fiscal policy? Probably not. Do I think we need to be more attentive to the importance of fiscal policy in recessions? Probably yes. I wanted to be sure we got to some of the work you've been doing on on rents and on, on sort of ways in which rents from housing and, and other things have, have contributed to inequality and, and sort of hurt the economy. You recently had a paper on this with Peter Orzog. Did you want to briefly lay out your main points there and we can go from there? Sure. Uh, we start with a few facts and then figure out an interpretation that helps make sense <laughs> of all these facts. So one fact is we all know that the rate of profit has drifted up and the profit share has drifted up. What's even more striking is if you go below the aggregate level and look at firms and you see some firms are super successful posting high returns year after year after year and other firms are pretty mediocre. Of course, that's always true. There's always right. you know some that are better <laughs> than average and, and some that are worse than average. The gap between them has grown enormously. Combine that with the fact that if you work for a more successful company, you will be paid more, even if you're doing exactly the same job and have exactly the same skills you would have brought to a less successful company. So this increased inequality among firms translates through to wages and is generating and contributing to some of the increase in inequality that we're seeing, which is still mostly inequality in the labor market is at the, the biggest root cause of our increase in inequality. So then the next question is, why is it that some businesses are becoming much, much more successful? And I think part of the answer is that an economy that is broadly competitive will compete away those extra profits. But an economy where many sectors are becoming more concentrated where many firms have figured out ways to erect barriers to entry is one in which you can year after year after year get extra profits without somebody else entering and competing them away. I think that's part of what's gone on. The flip side of that is a great opportunity in terms of public policy. And the thing that we all love most as economists is when we find something where there isn't a trade-off. Actually, I think thing economists love most is pointing out trade-offs and <laughs> making people sad about them. But I personally get even more excited <laughs> if I can find a way to improve efficiency and reduce inequality. And expanding competition, reducing some of these rents, I think is one way to do that. So I think that the connection here to, to housing might be a little oblique to people. So so how would... Oh, sorry. I keep using the word rent. I mean, rent yes. is, is an old economic term. Of course, yes. Uh, that, that is, you get a rate of return, not that you needed to do in order to do it, but just a sort of extra bonus because you had the thing. Right. And it's that extra bonus that you know is a wonderful thing to get if you're the one getting it. But from the perspective of the economy as a whole, may not be so wonderful. And one thing you point out is that a lot of these rents are often literally from rent, that the rate of return for for landlords, especially in, in sort of a certain set of, of highly productive urban areas, D.C., San Francisco, New York, has gone way up. What do you make of why that is? It's harder to build in certain places and 
you know, economics teaches you about supply and demand, and if you don't increase supply as much, and that's colliding against increasing demand, the result is, you know, as your your colleague Matt Iglesias said, the rent is too damn high, or house prices are. So I think those types of land use restrictions, and it's not just the sort of inconvenience of what it means for the cost of your rent, it's that it stops people from moving to precisely the places where people, you know, want to live, in many cases want to live because, you know, they're more productive, they have higher wages. And one of the dynamics that had fueled the U.S. economy was convergence. Places that had lower incomes converged to places that were higher incomes. They caught up, you know, maybe jobs moved there to take advantage of the opportunities or the people moved to where the jobs were. But either way, you saw a certain amount of convergence. We're seeing less convergence now. We're seeing less convergence because it's just harder for people to move to where the opportunities are. So this seems to put us in a weird situation where one of the biggest macroeconomic problems we have as a country is controlled by policy at, at not even the state, but the city level. I mean, with the exception of D.C., most places, the, the building rules are not set by Congress. They're, they're set by the city council, the mayor. What role do you as, as someone as in the White House have in, in trying to solve this? One thing is drawing attention to it and just making sure people can see the issue documented and the consequences of it documented. Talk to mayors, talk to local officials. We have a budget proposal which would have federal subsidies that would be incentive payments for localities that take innovative steps to help address this issue. So it's something where we already subsidize housing in this country and to make sure those subsidies are geared towards addressing this. But you're absolutely right that, that ultimately the decisions here are and, and should be local decisions. Another sort of area where you've identified rents is, is occupational licensing. I, I wanted to get a sense of how big of a problem you think that is. That it seems like when, when we're talking about rents, housing comes up as the biggest one and, and occupational licensing is kind of second. How much progress is there to be made there? So in the 1950s, 5% of people needed a license to engage in their jobs. You know, doctors did. Lawyers did. Many others didn't. Now it's 25% of people need a state license. Partly that's because we have a larger health sector and a larger education sector, and those right. areas are heavily licensed, but that's only about a third of the increase in licensing. The other two-thirds is just within each occupation, there is more licensing. A lot like the land use restrictions, this is something that happens. These are decisions at the state level. And the problem is the way in which these decisions are often made is a group of people who already have the credential get to make the decision about whether other people can come in and do that job too. And you know, the problem is that the result of this is lower wages for the people who can't get into it, but also higher prices. So this isn't like a great way to band together and pry profits out of the hands of you know the millionaires and billionaires and get them into the hands of the people. This is about almost taking 
you know, nickels and dimes from the people and moving them up. So I think this is a real issue. It once again is a state issue. And once again, we're using our bully pulpit. We have some funding that we got from Congress last year to help create incentives to do this. We're really trying to work with companies and legislatures in certain areas, especially like ex-offenders. In many of these licenses, they're just categorically excluded from getting them. In large numbers of jobs, they're just literally not allowed to have under state law. And that's, that's a big problem, especially in a country that has so many ex-offenders. Is this something that, that a lot of these, these licenses are, are, um, are voluntary, that the American Bar Association is not a government entity, that a lot of these are professional associations. Does that limit what the government can do to, to stem this trend? Well, the Supreme Court, you had a case of dentists in North Carolina who had made rules for themselves, and the Supreme Court ruled against that on antitrust grounds, saying that a group couldn't basically make rules about who could and couldn't compete in its area. They said the state could make that rule. Right. It just couldn't delegate the making of that rule to the people on whose behalf that rule was being made. So I think process here matters. So one of our recommendations has been that states establish sunrise commissions. So rather than delegate to each group the licensing of itself, you have a commission that anytime you want a new license, you look and you ask, does it pass a cost-benefit test? Not is it in the interest of the group that decided it wants a license, but from a broader public perspective. And states like Maine that have done that um, have, have used those types of institutions successfully. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. That was Vox.com's Dylan Matthews talking with Jason Furman, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening.